Yes, yes. Okay. This is the first podcast from the new studios. And guess what? I've got David Katz. The lovely girls in. is so sweet isn't it indeed it is <laughs> and it's count zebra with the cato nine an original jamaican mento track now mento as some of your listeners may already be aware is a distinctly jamaican form it's jamaica's uh, oldest surviving form of folk music indigenous folk music that we know of in fact it was kind of wrongly made famous by the banana boat song which is deemed to be mental well i guess there's ongoing debate about yeah whether it's deemed a mento or a calypso and there is all kinds of confusion because mento when it was first um, marketed outside of jamaica was marketed as calypso to tap in on the craze once Harry Belafonte brought Calypso into, uh, you know, non-Caribbean audiences' spheres with his hit-making album in the 50s. Yeah, no, I mean, when you listen to that track, Cato 9, where, of course, he's talking about being whipped by the women or something along those lines, you hear the banjo that you don't get in Trinidad and Calypso. Right. You hear this homemade bamboo saxophone. Again, a distinctly Jamaican element. And you hear what they call the rumba box. It doesn't get any rootsier than that, does indeed, it? Indeed, <laughs> indeed. So those are the very beginnings of Jamaican popular music, and the first recordings made in Jamaica were mental recordings. Now another element, <clears throat> excuse me, before Jamaican had their own music industry, the sound systems sprung up, because you'd had this thriving jazz scene in Jamaica since the 20s at least. But jazz was expensive those live concerts 
were catering more for the light-skinned upper class and for visiting tourists. The poor black masses couldn't really afford to go to those events. And their means of being exposed to popular music came through the sound systems after Jamaicans that went up to the States to do seasonal farm work, brought down amplifiers, built their own speaker boxes. So let's take a listen to an American tune, which was a huge hit in Jamaica, which was something that you might have heard on some of those early sound systems. This is Barbara Lynn, You'll Lose a Good Thing. There you go. If you should lose me Oh yeah You lose a good thing I'm giving you one more chance For you to do right If you'll only straighten up We'll have a good life Cause if you should lose And if you don't believe me, just try it, Daddy, and you'll lose a good thing. Just try it, Daddy, and you'll lose a good thing. Just try it, Daddy, and you'll lose a good thing. We really jumped right in. I didn't have a, a chance to introduce David. Um, not only is he, uh, of course, a vinyl head, he's a well-respected music writer and um, official biographer of Lee Scratch Perry, amongst other things. How, how did you even get involved with all of the Caribbean scene in the first place? Okay, well, I was very fortunate in that I grew up in a time and place where I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of music from an early age. So it even starts, so I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Town only had one radio station, but that one radio station had a hardcore reggae program that was broadcast every Sunday night for three hours called Midnight Dread. Now, okay, your listeners are checking this out on a podcast, and some of them may be too young to remember a time when broadcast radio you know the am and fm bands were all that we had exactly and radio was extremely important for me as a young person growing up and the host of that program he didn't just play commercial reggae he played really hardcore deep deep music 
He traveled frequently to Jamaica and he brought guests up from Jamaica a lot to appear on the show. Uh-huh. So I can remember, for instance, the Wailing Souls being live on the air performing Kingdom Rise, Kingdom Fall, a cappella the week that the record came out. Kingdom rise and 
once I discovered Midnight Dread, and then there was a, a free newspaper called the Reggae Calendar that a man named Corbett Harvey Bowers produced, and that listed every reggae radio show that there was in the vicinity. So I started tuning into different reggae programs every day. All right. So presumably by, by that time, it was kind of growing into something of a bit of a movement in San Francisco, was it? There was always a, a strong um, love for reggae that came, ironically, maybe as an offshoot of hippie culture. Because, you right. know, San Francisco being the city of free love... And so there was always a strong like marijuana movement and that right. kind of thing. So it came in through there. Very unlike here where you know it was more associated with like skinheads and so on. Initially. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, of course, I'm, what time was that? You know, so we're talking about late 70s coming into the early 80s. Right, yeah, right, right. Because so of course, I mean, here me. in London, we had the counterparts of what was going on in Kingston at the time. Yes. Because there was, of course, a time where people moved over. So, and Jamaicans wouldn't come just with uh, whatever clothes. They would bring furnitures and records. I think the thing that happens with music is that music travels and it resonates with people. Right. I remember when I interviewed Norman Grant from the Twinkle Brothers, he said they got fan mail from all over the world, places they'd never even heard of, people writing to them to say how much they enjoyed the music. And this was just small, limited pressings that they made in Jamaica.
you know, David came here with a, a wealth of uh, vinyl. Yeah, yeah. I got all kinds of stuff, but I tell you what we'll do. So okay. just just to get back to the story, very. Be- I'll give you the summarized <laughs> quick summary. So I first came here in 1983, already a reggae head. And, you know, I was astounded by all the sound systems here, like DBC, the Dread Broadcasting Corporation. Yes. That was also on the air as a community station, what you would call over here as a pirate. But we know they were really community yeah. stations. And so many other, so much reggae happening here. I remember seeing Aswad at that time, and they had Eddie Tantan Thornton on trumpet and Vin Gordon on trombone, these Jamaican musicians in with their ordinary players. And it, you know, it was an astounding time for music here. It was, it was a fantastic time to be here. Came back at the end of 86, met Lee Scratch Perry, you know, because I had started writing for a, a, a small magazine in California called Wiring Department that a friend who had a band had started up. My band used to play with his band and so on. Right. He started a magazine. He asked me to write for it. And writing about music came easy for me. So I wrote this article about when Lee Perry released an album called The Battle of the Armageddon, Millionaire Liquidator. Don't mess. Don't mess. Don't mess. Don't you mess with Bill. Don't mess with Bill. All things are possible. Nothing is impossible. All things are possible. Don't mess with I found that Scratch was still living here. So I tried to arrange for an interview. Well, we never really got around to the interview. Uh, when I first met him, he was too busy doing all this ritualistic stuff. But he took away a copy of the magazine and he read the article. And he thought that his message was getting through to me at a time when he was at a very low ebb in his career. So he summoned me down to this studio he was working at at the time down in Rotherhide and put me through this bizarre initiation ceremony and then said to me, you know, you, you're the ghostwriter. And there it was, this burden on my shoulders that I was supposed to help him ghostwrite his autobiography. And it took me 10 years to get uh, a publisher that was willing to take on that Lee Perry project. I'm happy that you brought it up because, you know, I was dying <laughs> to ask you a question about Lee Scratch Perry. Now, the question is, number one, is there any sense to what he actually says or is just about really? And that's question number one. Question number two is, does he ever take a break or is he always like that? Okay, now these are very good questions. What I would say is, um, he never really takes a break from it. He never really takes a break from it. He is pretty much like that 24 seven. But with varying degrees. What, what I would say is a little different is sometimes if cameras are around and he knows he's on camera, he's being recorded, he'll ham it up and he'll play to that notion that he's mad. And then if people aren't around, he's not necessarily like that. But at the same time, 
You know, Scratch, since as long as I've known him, Scratch has spent an inordinate amount of time building strange junk sculptures right. that he just he just does this constantly kind of every day. Right. And he does it when people are around and he does it when nobody's around. He's probably doing it right now as we speak. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he does that more than he does music? Good question. Maybe he maybe does that a little more than he does music. But maybe for him it's kind of the same thing. It's all expressing something. I see him as somebody that has so much creativity that he's always searching for an outlet. And I think the difference became where in the old days, as you were saying, he ran his own studio, the Black Ark. He was right. very much a record producer, producing other people's work and producing his own work. You know, before that, he tried to make it as a singer at Studio One, mm. not so successfully. He, he concentrated more on record production. But then there's this after phase, you know, the late 1970s. He has some kind of a breakdown and a dramatic metamorphosis. And he comes out wow. of it as, as a new character, Pipecock Jackson. And all these different types of things start to happen. So once you reach that after phase, you know, everything is about like building these sculptures and yeah. painting graffiti and so on and so forth. Wow. It's yeah. like compulsive behavior, I would say.
At some point, the Britons find out about him and, and he ends up actually working with the Beatles. Is that a legend? Is that true? What happened there? Hmm, why don't... Yeah, I'll, t- <laughs> I'll tell you what happened. It wasn't exactly that. Scratch came from the countryside in Jamaica and he came into Kingston as a, at a young age after he says, you know, he'd been, he'd been working to build a road because the town of Negril was going to be developed for tourism in the late 50s. So he was there bulldozing roads and crashing rocks together. And he says he heard these divine voices like coming out of the rock and some thunder and something. And they tell him, go to Kingston. So he goes to Kingston to try to make it as a singer. Duke Reed rejects him, but steals his lyrics, gives them to Stranger Cole, who was better established, did the song Rough and Tough with Perry's lyrics without his permission. They got in a conflict. Reed was beating Perry up. Coxon comes breaks up the scuffle, takes Perry away and says, okay, you can come work for me. Has him employed as a handyman. Scratch tries to record some songs as a singer. Doesn't get that far. Eventually, he starts his own label. In 69, he has this huge hit, this breakthrough hit called Return of Django. And that became this huge hit that entered the British pop charts. So he came here in 69 with his Upset His Back In Band, and they did a little tour. Somewhere along the line, when he's setting up his own studio, he starts traveling back and forth between Jamaica and Britain. So when he's setting up his own studio, he somehow gets a hold of Ringo Starr's drum kit, some obsolete Ringo Starr drum kit, apparently. So he had that in the Black Ark and was using that. But the link gets a little more concrete in the late 70s after he's got a a contract with Island Records. And so Chris Blackwell, the founder of Island Records, introduces him to Paul McCartney in London. So Scratch meets Paul and Linda McCartney. And they have an idea, oh, we're working on a Linda McCartney album. Scratch, build us some rhythms at your studio in Jamaica. And we want to voice that. So they did it remotely. They didn't actually travel and record at the Black Ark. It, it's still illegible for me. I yeah. Mean, that is collaboration with the Beatles. Yeah. And the album was never completed. But that song was released posthumously, you know, when after Linda McCartney died, Paul McCartney issued it on the Linda McCartney album, Wide Prairie. Catch the feet. 
Just reminiscing about uh, uh, you know the um, beautiful uh, gigs in London and uh, yeah I was curious about this because you said you've been here for well I guess yeah, longer yeah, than yeah. you care to remember right <laughs> yeah. now yeah, almost 27 years 27 years yeah. in London wow that's a commitment man <laughs> um, so I mean how how did you find the music in London I mean how was was it a culture shock coming from from San Francisco area in a good way. Because um, one thing about, you know, San Francisco is a, a beautiful town and it's, it's a great place to visit. If any of your listeners have never been there, I encourage you to go and visit. And in the late 70s, it had a thriving music scene. You know, it had a, had a strong music scene in the late 60s, also had a, a strong music scene in the late 70s. But from the mid 80s, the character of the city changed. And a lot of the changes for me were negative. The dot-com boom brought in a lot of money and a lot of different kinds of people settling there and the music scene suffered and but anyway for me first time coming to london 1983 yeah there was incredible music happening and you know london is an exceptional place because it's got people from all over the world and mm -hmm. constantly coming and going and bringing aspects of their own culture and bringing bringing their music and influencing the dominant music. And arguably, the Jamaicans have made more of an impact than anybody else in, Absolutely. In, on the music scene here. I mean, still nowadays, you know, I mean, talk about, you know, from dubstep to all forms of uh, bass-based music. That's right. Know, on the dance side of things, because, totally. uh, you know, the concept of sound system in itself. And, 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 Indeed. And, it, and there were sound system at the time in London. The, the first sound system outside of Jamaica was established here by Duke Vin, who came over as a stowaway on the Empire Windrush in 48 with another 
committed sound man, Count Suckle, the two of them stowed away together and then became rivals on the sound system circuit here. And yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit like if you can't be in Jamaica, this is the number one place to be for Jamaican music. I think it's always been that way. Actually, I'm mindful of a, a book that was released recently called Sounds Like London by Lloyd Bradley, and it, it looks at 100 years of black music in the capital. And he really unpacks the way that all these different musicians coming from Jamaica, other parts of the Caribbean, Africa, and elsewhere have really made London culturally what it is through the music and, and the broader culture of the place. With version. Music arms are full of love. Sounds so really make you rub and scrub. Personally, for music, arts, theater, cinema, you can't beat it. But um, getting back to the music, in fact, I've got a little example here. Ooh. Why don't you s stick this record absolutely, on? Absolutely, absolutely. So this is another record. So this is Yes. Right. So this is a record that also made a dramatic impact in Jamaica. Now, so 
So we're talking about the way that Jamaican music has impacted over here. But the music that was made here by multicultural groups. So this record, Bongo Chant by Kenny Graham's Afro-Cubists. The Afro-Cubists was a mixed band that had um, white English people and you know people from other parts of the British Isles and also players from Jamaica and elsewhere in the Caribbean and also some African players. You mix it all together and you get an inter- a very interesting hybrid and you'll hear them here playing a kind of a, a Latin-esque rhythm. I mean, what do we make of this track? But anyway, let, let it roll and we'll discuss it from there. Basically, this is a mixture of cha-cha, jazz, rumba, kind of boogie-woogie. What is yeah, that? a bit of boogie-woogie piano, a bit of ragtime thrown in or something. And then the language. What language are they singing in? Or is it just some made-up language? It reminds me of those records that you get in West Africa where they don't speak Spanish, so they sing a kind of a cod Spanish. All right. A lot of those types of records came into Jamaica from sailors that came in on the ships. And you had touts that used to hang out 
at um, some of the houses of ill repute and they would trade records to uh, help them gain entry to such establishments, apparently. So when you think about ska, ska is this hybrid of all these different elements happening. Music that could be picked up from Cuban radio. Bolero became part of ska, you know, with songs like Fat Man by Derek Morgan. It was a bolero adaptation. And uh, you had merengue from the Dominican Republic. And then you had a lot of the players were going to the Bahamas to do the tourist thing. So they were picking up on sounds from different parts of the Caribbean and also the southern U.S. And then the late night radios, they could tune in radios broadcasting from New Orleans, WNOE and WINZ and um, so on and so forth. But so, so there's all these dynamic things coming together in ska. But let's listen to another. This is not quite, we're not quite in full-blown ska yet. But this is another different element that greatly influenced the music. So this is an early Toots and the Maytals. And yeah. Uh, are we going to get to full-blown ska later on? Just, just directly after this. Right. We'll hit you with a full-blown ska. But let's listen to a bit of a Baptist spiritual element that also is very strong in those days.
Drummond schooling the Duke. Yeah, yeah, the, exactly. The genius figure behind the Scudalites. I mean, he wasn't the band leader, but he was the most creative force in the group and something of a tormented soul that tried to channel the torment into his music. And now, we've been listening to Jamaican Rhythm and Blues going into the ska, and then the next phase comes in, the mid-1960s. You get a new style called Rock Steady. And one of the um, subject matter addressed in Rock Steady was the rude boy phenomenon, these street gangs that were um, plaguing Kingston with violence. So let's have a listen. Everybody 
to this kind of music and it's you know slightly imperfect with this voices you know being slightly out of tune and being that the rhythms are so loose and everything and you forget about what you should know about music and you go straight to the soul exactly know, to the soul element i think it's it's uh, an endless source of fascination because there's so many different things that come into it that make it unique You know, if you look historically at the circumstances of Jamaica, it's got a very turbulent history in a way that some of the other islands of the Caribbean do not. And a lot of the turbulence and, and violence and um, upheaval that has affected the island does come into the music. At the same time, it's an extremely optimistic sound and it can be a very soothing sound even when the lyrics are talking about harsh realities. So I think there's all different kinds of aspects that, that have made a hold on me personally, you know, and many others as well. Yeah, it's, it's hard to pinpoint just one thing. From the Rocksteady era onwards, you did have, uh, when the bass changed from being an acoustic stand-up bass, you know, if you think of the days of ska, everybody was crowded around one microphone, and they were big, big band setups, big recording in real time and then by the time Rocksteady comes in you've had some advent of multi-track technology so even if it's only four tracks um, it King Tubby yeah well this is you know a few years before Tubby was doing his thing oh wow but one of the things that happened was electric bass came in and it really was placed to the foreground So that was one distinctive thing about Jamaican popular music. The bass plays the melody. So the bass is, is not only an anchor, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's a key melodic focus for, for all the songs. And that stays constant throughout the reggae period. It only starts to wade slightly in the digital phase. So, so w what is it that you're, we're going to listen to now? Okay, so we just heard Traveling Man by The Techniques, a quintessential piece of rock steady. And in the same way that Coxon was on top in ska, Duke Reed really ruled rock steady. And when you hear a Duke Reed recording at Treasure Isle Studio, which was a studio with a lot of wood interior, it has that warmth that really hooks you in. So what we're going to hear now is a track by The Melodians. And we're going to follow that with a Uroy counterpart that was recorded a couple years later. And this is really the genesis of rap music as we know it. And it happens in Jamaica first. But first, let's listen to the Melodians. 
This is an immortal number. You have caught me. Yellow, play down the track. 
We hardly get time to change records and stop it when it's finished um, uh, because we have so many things to talk about. And we were going, okay, right, this has to do with Africa. I mean, it's not just as simple as looking at, you know, what uh, Bling Bling uh, Bob Marley is wearing uh, as he's singing. But uh, it, it has to do, of course, with... Uh, uh, a long story of suffering as well. Uh, we're talking about the diaspora and the and 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 and, and the slavery, and uh, so it's a soulful music that is tainted with blood and therefore much stronger than many other musical stories. But True. they all have in common whether there is the Yoruba element or the uh, Orisha element into it. It's that it comes from Africa. Yeah. Why? How? Yeah, but well, as we were saying earlier, you know, Jamaica has this very turbulent history. So obviously, the largest shaping factor was that long period of slavery. So, you know, you got to think the Spanish went there in the time of Columbus and claimed the island for Spain, but they didn't do much with it. They they didn't have a lot of success with it as a colony. And they ended up growing crops there to export to some of the other places they were going to in South America. They got kind of diverted looking for the Fountain of Youth and searching for Inca gold. And so after the indigenous population was decimated through disease, they started to import a few Africans in the early days of the slave trade, but not on a large scale. It's when the British take control, 1655, you know, they wrest it from the Spanish through through the help of the pirates, Sir Francis Drake and others getting involved in piracy to break the Spanish Armada. And they claim Jamaica for the crown. And then Jamaica becomes the linchpin 
of their empire. The whole capitalist system relied on Jamaica. And you then had the mass importation of slaves from West and Central Africa. What's interesting with Jamaica culturally in terms of the music, as we're saying, Jamaica is the odd one out because Cuba, uh, most of the other islands of the Caribbean and Brazil and these other territories, Yoruba was the dominant musical culture and and the dominant culture of the uh, African slaves. But in Jamaica, that really wasn't so. Jamaica only had two villages in the northwest of the country where you had uh, significant Yoruba settlements. And that was mostly in the period of indentured labor that followed slavery's abolition. So uh, that's one of the reasons why reggae evolved as it is. It's in, in that unique way. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Even, even the circumstances of the period of indentureship are quite complicated in terms of who ended up in Jamaica, how and why. So th- there, is, there is also this element of uh, rebellion, isn't there? Definitely. I mean, in Jamaica, the rebellion was, was huge. You know, So you had the Maroons, first of all, the runaway slaves that when the Spanish fled the island, they went up into the hills. And the British could not defeat them. There were these fierce wars that went on for years. But eventually, the Maroons foolishly did sign a treaty with the British. And part of that treaty meant that in gaining their own freedom, they would have to then hunt down other escaped slaves. And it means that the Maroons in Jamaica, who still have their own semi-autonomous communities, are somewhat ostracized and outside of the rest of Jamaican society. But getting back to this Yoruba thing and, and the music, when we're thinking about the record we just played, Uroy version galore, which was one of the first toasting records to feature a fluid toasting style. Right. You'd had some earlier um, examples of DJs on record, but they were just... MCing, really. Yeah, they, they weren't even... In the early days, they just did a few shouts and a few whoops, oh, and not see. much. So they did... In the sky years, they used to do what they call peps. So with their mouth, they would go... You know, rhythmic oh, right, peps right, right, right. to keep people dancing. Right. But once you get to the toasters doing fluid toasts from Uroy onwards, they assume the, the persona of a griot. And even, you know, they have a lot of interjections like um, the, the main one that came after Uroy, Dennis Al Capone, his trademark was to do, yeah, 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 like that, you know? Right, and right, right. Um, there's, it's a bit like which, in the house. Uh, which is the equivalent, the equivalent of a Yeah, you know <laughs> exactly, exactly, and so, but you know, and the griots of West Africa kind of become embodied in the the toasters that then start toasting the news, if you like. Right. You know. Oh, I see. There's there's all kinds of parallels that you can see right. these survivals of transplantation of Africans in the New World. And this is another multi-track technology treat here.
Great Ken Parker with I Can't Hide. So you can hear we're heading into the reggae zone now. This is, you know, reggae coming in as a fast, new-paced dance music at the end of the 60s. And Ken Parker, interestingly enough, he went on to become a preacher, settled in the States and became a preacher over there. But uh, the London International Ska Festival is going to bring him over in April to perform as part of their proceedings. Another gig to look out for at those events You've got the great Junior Mervyn performing at the opening night at the Jazz Cafe with yours truly on the decks. So do come along and check that out.
just so yeah. Oh, listen, I cannot t- begin to tell you how happy I am that you came in today because uh, it's really great talking to you. Hey, thanks a lot for having me uh, on your podcast, and uh, yeah, it's a great pleasure to to hear what you have to say as well. Right, right, and uh, yeah, of course, man. I, I uh, uh, don't miss the Dub Me Always uh, event with the um, cats. Suffice to say, eleventh of December. Just <laughs> this just, year. Yeah, just just so you know that event takes place on the second Wednesday of every month upstairs at the Ritzy in Brixton. For more information, you can go to Facebook slash Dub Me Always. Dub plates from the seventies, sixties, eighties, and beyond. Uh, you're really good at doing that. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should hire you. You should do that for me. <laughs> David, listen, thank you so much for coming around. There will be a part two, isn't there? Yeah, totally. Right, yeah, right. I look forward to that. Fantastic. Okay, and going out with the Abyssinians, a landmark recording, 1969 at Studio One, Declaration of Rights. Cause the wind 